The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. Welcome to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues, Ocean River Shields of Achilles, with your host, Dr. Rob Moyer. Find out what others are doing and what you can do to create a greener and blue planet Earth. Now, here's Dr. Rob Moyer. Welcome. Today, we're talking about Stellwagen Bank National Marine Sanctuary off the coast of Massachusetts. And my guest is radio host, actress, and jazz singer, Christine Larkin. Hello, Christine. Hello, Rob. How are you? I'm doing great. I'm up here in Cambridge in uh, Harvard Square, and it's a beautiful day. And they're actually having graduation today at Harvard, so the place is brimming with people. And Uh, where are you calling it from? I am out in beautiful Long Island uh, on the south shore of this beautiful island that stretches out uh, east of Manhattan. And it is along the coast, so we have lots of beaches and aquatic life and ocean, and it's, it's just beautiful. Beautiful day today, too. Yeah, you were telling me about a recent encounter you had on the beach there. I sure did. We were out on uh, Robert Moses State Park, which uh, really took a, a beating in Hurricane Sandy back in October, and uh, we're happy to see the beaches have reopened uh, this Memorial Day weekend, and uh, we were walking along the shoreline, and there was a stingray, a baby stingray, uh, on its back uh, that passed away, washed up on the shoreline. And, uh, you know, I have never, in all the years I have spent living and working out here, ever seen one of these. Uh, so mm. it was quite something to see it. Yes. So you're seeing quite a lot of changes in the shoreline there. We are. Uh, you know, the, the hurricane, you know, it was monumental. We've never witnessed anything like it all the way on the coast of Long Island to the coast of New York, uh, down to New Jersey. Uh, really a tremendous shift in the uh, shoreline. Uh, and I really want to give a, a thank you to all the men and women that are working so hard to restore the shoreline. And that goes for uh, ocean life as well, aquatic life, all those beauties that live in the water. So, yeah, it, it's changed, but it's beautiful. Yeah, it's just remarkable that we now have a president's call for a national ocean policy, which is getting the 27 different government agencies to work together on oceans, and it really helps to have set up those connections when it comes to repairing the beaches, like you're saying and stuff. That's just really great. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's kind of sobering, but it's also, you know, the oceans are always changing, and uh, we just got to deal with the changes as they come. That's right, and I, I know today we're going to be speaking about the Stellwagen Bank National Marine Sanctuary. Right, so, mm-hmm. which is my thing. So um, we're going to turn the tables today. I had such a good time talking with you on uh, Genesis Global Media's radio show that um, I've invited you, Christine Larkin, to come back and interview me. About <laughs> well, I, thank me. you, Rob. It, it's a pleasure to be here, and it's, uh, it feels kind of odd to be on the other side of the table, but I'm, I'm taking it. I love it. 
Uh, I'm, I'm going to talk a little bit about this amazing sanctuary uh, between Cape Ann and Cape Cod. In the southwest corner of the Gulf of Maine is Massachusetts Bay. The bay's most prominent submerged feature is the kidney-shaped plateau called Stellwagen Bank, which lies at the bay's eastern edge. Stellwagen Bank, it's a shallow, primarily sandy feature, curving in a southeast to northwest direction for 19 miles. It's roughly six miles across, excuse me, it's roughly six miles across at its widest point at the southern end. And water depths over and around the bank range from 65 feet on the southwest corner to depths of about 600 feet in deep passages to the northeast. Massachusetts Basin on the western side of the sanctuary levels off at about 300 feet in depth, while the top of the bank averages about 100 to 120 feet. Stellwagen Bank is the centerpiece of the Stellwagen Bank National Marine Sanctuary, which encompasses a total of 638 square nautical miles, or 842 square miles. The sanctuary also includes all of the Tillys Bank, situated to the northeast of Stillwagon Bank, and southern portions of Jeffreys Ledge, situated to the north. The western boundary line of the sanctuary is approximately 25 miles east of Boston. The southern boundary is three miles from Provincetown, while the northwestern boundary is three miles from Gloucester. From the sanctuary's uh, situate-based headquarters, the distance is approximately 11 miles. That's an amazing place, huh? It really is. And it's, it, it is far from Boston. 25 miles is a long way to go in a boat. But fortunately, yeah. like you said, it's only three miles south of Gloucester, and the fishermen love going there for good reason that we'll get into. And uh, it's only three miles out of Provincetown. Mm. So, Rob, how did you get involved with Stellwagen Bank? Well, thank you, Christine. I first got involved with Stellwagen Bank because I was going on whale watches, and we would go out of town and go to Stellwagen to find the humpback whales feeding, along with some fin whales and minke whales. Mm. And, uh, you know, so I got really excited. I looked at the chart, and it looked to me like a gravel bank that was deposited by the glaciers, and it acted as a threshold between Mass Bay and the entire Gulf of Maine. And now, as you know, the water in the Gulf of Maine is, swirls like a big gyre, and uh, it turns counterclockwise, and it brings to Stellwagen Bank this n- nutrient-rich waters that has been fed from all the rivers that empty into the Gulf of Maine. And this water is welled up into the photic zone, the light zone, on top of Stellwagen Bank in those shallower waters of 100 feet deep, you were saying. Mm. And uh, the algae bloom there, and so because they get the light and the nutrients, you got to have both at the same time. And then they get eaten by zooplankton, and the zooplankton is eaten by small fish, and on up the line uh, until you have cod and, and whales feeding away. And since then, I've I've since learned that uh, Stellwagen Bank's a bit more complicated than that. I could not imagine that there were 600 feet deep, uh, well, off the bank, but in the sanctuary, 600 feet deep um, basins. You know, I thought you'd have to go off the continental slope to get there or something. Mm-hmm. And um, the bottoms are four distinct types. There's the gravel bottom, which is the home for cod and haddock. And there's muddy bottoms with redfish and tubed anemones. Sandy bottoms have the goosefish, now called the monkfish in there. And there are boulder reefs where the wolffish hangs out. 
just incredible. There's so much going on there. But let's start with the cod. Um, cod were once plentiful in the Atlantic Ocean and then endangered uh, due to overfishing. Can you imagine? So what were the regulations like uh, with overfishing at that time? W- were there any? Um, no, not in the early days, no. And so, and the mm-hmm. early days for cod go way, way back. Um Back to 750 A.D., the people living in Norseland, I figured it's my 75th grandparents or generations ago. Oh, my. Um, you know, they figured out that codfish, you could um, flake it out uh, and, and put it on wooden stocks. And the cold air carried bacterium that would ferment, kind of ferment the fish and preserve it. And so this stockfish became preserved fish, and for the first time, the um, people could, you know, eat more than, than would decompose in a day, or, you know, they could, they could store food, mm-hmm. and it became used like money, where they could trade it and stockpile it, and this enabled, you know, the Norse people to be able to travel great distances, because the air-dried cod, stock-dried cod, would um, keep for a couple years. And a then, couple of years? That's an incredibly long time. Right. So it's like the ultimate pemmican or, you know, beef jerky, except it was cod <laughs> or something. Mm-hmm. And when the Normans invaded England in 1066, the, uh, the Anglos and the Saxons had no word for codfish. So we think they introduced the idea of codfish to the, the British. And, you know, well, it was tough for the codfish because everyone started going out and fishing for them because it was like the original oil rush, you know. It was like okay. here was the thing to have. And so, you know, first the cod got fished out of the Baltic Ocean and then the North Sea, and then they just systematically worked from right to left until soon, well, until around the 1300s, you know, uh, people from Europe were traveling over to Massachusetts and looking for codfish. Mm, amazing. So... Tell us uh, about the pilgrim's role in conserving fish and, and what effects this had on cod. Yes. Well, so the, the, the pilgrims came from England, and they arrived um, in Plymouth, as you know, and they just could not get over all the codfish that were swimming around because there were no codfish to find in the North Sea or around the British waters. And so this, to them, was a, a wonderful thing to have. And um, also striped bass. So they got through the winter eating the striped bass because that's in the rivers okay. and it would come closer. Whereas the cod, they'd have to get into a boat and, and go a little bit offshore with a, um, or maybe not. Maybe they could pitchfork it or something. But uh, <laughs> you never but, know. But what happened was by 1639, the pilgrims arrived in 1620, mm-hmm. and by 1639 there were 10,000 or 20,000 um, Europeans living around Mass Bay. And they all set to, like, beavers, damming up rivers, building mills, and, and not being too discreet about pollution and stuff. And, and uh, so the, the pilgrims noticed by 1639 that there were fewer codfish than when they arrived. Uh-huh. And this concerned them because they were afraid it would go the way of the North Sea with no cod at all. So they passed a law, the first, um, first law of, of 1639, which... Uh, forbid the use of cod and striped bass for fertilizing of crops. You know, the, the, the first Native Americans showed the pilgrims that if you put a menhaden fish in with a corn, uh, your corn will grow better. And mm-hmm. so the, the settlers went, you know, 
got a little carried away in this, and, and it's like, no, you can't use codfish or um, striped bass because it's too precious a fish. You know, use instead the menhaden and the herring. Okay. So those were some of the earlier regulations. And then, so there was a decline uh, for a few centuries there with the cod population. Uh, were there other fish other than the striped bass that then took its place as, as food? Well, that's an interesting story because the cod say that, I mean, the scientists who aren't cods are scientists, they say that, um, well, gee, you know, we, um, you know, what, what has taken the place of the codfish, you know, we've stopped, we've we let up on the fishing and um, the codfish haven't come back up again because they just steadily go down. Mm-hmm. And what's interesting is the fishermen were saying that um, in about 1850, they figured out that menhaden fish, which is in, inedible, could be um, have their fish oil extracted from it. And so this became a supplement to whale oil to use in all the lamps. And so the next oil rush was around catching menhaden. Uh-huh. And the fishermen weren't catching the menhaden. The scientists, who were wealthy gentlemen in Boston and, and other places, were financing this, this menhaden fishery to scoop up all the menhaden, like oil drilling, you know, to get the fish oil on the market. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And the fishermen are saying, don't do that because the cod depend on it. And the fish and the scientists said, oh, no, there's plenty of cod in the sea. Look how big the ocean is. We've done our calculations, and there's plenty. And also, we're intelligent scientists, so we can manufacture um, codfish to put back in the ocean. So the scientists would go out with the fishing boats, and when they caught codfish, they'd scrape the eggs off and hatch the eggs and then throw millions of uh, tiny cod fry back in the ocean and say, look, you know, we're doing this. Of course, they didn't do the math that, you know, one codfish lives seven years and might set eggs, you know, five times for five years, and each set is 200,000 eggs. So mm-hmm. that's a million eggs right there from one, just to replace that one cod, you know. Wow. Um, because the, the, the cod never showed a response. The fishing never got better because of all the technology of putting it in. And, the, and it turns out that the codfish and the fish and the scientists said, well, look, the cod have got um, – you know, scallops and lobsters, and they're scrounging the bottom. They're getting plenty. There's lots of marine life down there. The problem is, is the fishermen think the cod were starving, and this was not as nutritious as the vitamin D and the lipid fats that you get in the fatty oils of the menhaden, and also herring. But the herring were also being caught too. Okay. Um, so, yeah. But then there there was an increase in 2008 uh, of cod, and and this was due to the fishermen and the scientists compromising and working together. Uh, tell us about that. Yes, exactly. So in 1972, the Mags and Stevens Act was passed, and they set up regional fishing fishery management councils. And so the New England Fisheries Management Council started meeting, and the scientists and the fishermen, they tried to figure out, you know, fishermen reported how much they could catch, try to say much, this is how much they could get, and everyone tried to figure out how to take enough fish and still leave enough to reproduce and, you know, maximum sustainable yield. And, and they were doing pretty good because the numbers were slowly trending upward, and it took great sacrifices of the fishermen. And then in 2008, they, um, the scientists, the Fishery Science Center, did um, seven toes, and one toe sampling fish was enormously high. Mm-hmm. And they said, wow, look at all these codfish. 
and the tow happened to be from Stellwagen Bank. Ah. And they said uh, on Sandy Bottom, and, and they said that, uh, wow, there are this many, there are this many fish. Let's um, let, let's assume that there's some other situations in the Gulf of Maine like this mm-hmm. Stellwagen Bank count, and therefore figure there's more fish in the sea. And so they increased the how many fish the, the fishermen could take, and okay. so the fishermen followed suit. But um, but what happened was that uh, that the reason they were high was because the sandlands were breeding in the sand right there on Stellwagen, and the codfish came around. Mm-hmm. And so when they went to count in 2011, there were no more. You know, 2011, three years later, the, the scientists count every three years the codfish. Okay, and there was and a the decrease sand, then. The sandlands only breed every seven years, and so okay. lo and behold. The sandlands weren't breeding. The codfish weren't feeding on the sandlands, and so they saw a huge fall of the estimate number of um, cod, and and so they had to push it back to 2003 levels. Um, so it wasn't because of the fishermen's action; it was because of the, the miscounting of the of the scientists. Just amazing. But their work together is so important. Just a, as a side, um, tell our listeners what is sandlands. Well, sandlance is a pencil-shaped, about six-inch-long fish that is the favorite food when it's when it's a lot of it for the whales and, and for the um, codfish, and it's one of the reasons why fish come, and animals come from all over to Stellwagen when they're breeding to feed. Mm-hmm. Um, Christine, we're going to take a short break okay. and be right back. Great. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Connecting local stewardship with global support, the Ocean River Institute is a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work. We believe that many environmental issues can best be addressed by people taking action in their own communities and regions. It's not the large national entities, but the small, localized, or newly formed groups that often need help to achieve their goals. That's where the Ocean River Institute comes in. We maintain a network of eco-stewards and ORI partners, connecting them with resources and services to help them maximize their impact, expand their capacity, and weather unexpected setbacks. ORI actions and events offer opportunities to make a difference, to go the distance, and you can volunteer to be an ORI eco-steward. To discover more, visit us online at www.oceanriver.org. That's www.oceanriver.org. The Ocean River Institute is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work through environmental stewardship and science. Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. If you'd like to talk, call us toll-free right now at 1-866-472-5787. That's it. That's it. VoiceAmerica.com. Me 
You're listening to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. To participate in today's discussion, you're welcome to call into the program at 1-888-346-9141. Again, that's 1-888-346-9141. You can also send an email to rob at oceanriver.org. Now, back to Dr. Rob Moyer. Hi, we're back, and my guest today is Christine Larkin, and we are talking about Stellwagen Bank. Um, Christine, we were just talking about codfish. What's next on your list? Well, the codfish, what a fascinating uh, discussion there. I've learned something, as I, I love to learn. So redfish, let's, let's talk about that. Tell us about the redfish that swim in Stellwagen Bank, and are they really red? Yeah, they really are. They're tops up vary from reddish-orange to flame-red, and they have pink bellies that contrast with the redder, the redder pelvic and anal fins they have underneath there. Oh, they're and, beautiful. And then the contrast is they have a big eye, bigger than most fish in proportion to the body, that's as black as a mussel shell, mm. and so it gives a very distinctive air to this fish, and they can grow to about um, 18 to 20 inches, and they live for about 50 years. 50 years. That's a beautiful life. Now, they, they're different. They give birth to live young, unlike other fish. What makes them different? Well, that's different. Those females can produce between 15,000 and 20,000 larvae per breeding cycle. And that's actually a low number for birth of a fish. Remember, I was talking about the codfish mm-hmm. might put out, you know, 200,000 200, eggs or something. But, um, so this this is an issue with it because they they grow slowly, they live long, they're slow reproducing, so it makes the survival of redfish more difficult, you know, for the fisheries management people. Okay, and and are they good for fishermen to eat when the cod is low? Yeah, they're just great. Um, they um, oh, let's see, I was talking about their habitat, but they talk. Yeah, so they're really good to. There was a problem in. Um, preserving the redfish so that it's spoiled quicker than the other fish okay. we, like weed. And so a bad day for redfish was in 1930s when Clarence Birdside developed the fish freezers in Gloucester. And so then the redfish became more accommodating to this new food technology. And frozen redfish became the fish of choice for many of us, and it helped to feed the U.S. military during the war. Oh, is that right? That's so interesting. Now, was there a strict uh, fishery management at this time? At that time, uh, for no. catching red? No. Oh, all right. No, that was the problem. So, in 1932, before they had Clarence Birdseye's freezers on board, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. about 100 metric tons of redfish were brought ashore. And then in 1952, 130,000 tons of redfish came ashore. Okay. And as a result, they never landed that many ever again, and the population crashed. And so then the managers responded with a number of strict fisheries management measures, mm-hmm. and they oh, implemented a redfish right. rebuilding plan. Okay. And so yeah. that's when the sacrifices paid off and the redfish population rebounded. And so today it's managed by the Lunar Fisheries Management Council's Northeast Multi-Species Fishery Management Plan. Yeah. And just in June of last summer, the redfish population was declared fully rebuilt. How so you, you can like eat that? these fish as much as you want, and it won't hurt the population. That's beautiful. So that regulation, that management is so key. Now, I want to talk about this, this next fish, the bluefin tuna. 
This is a, a beauty. Uh, it, it's the fastest and most valuable fish of Stillwagon Bank. Is it not? Tell us about that, Rob. Oh, yeah. Um, let me tell you how fast it is. It, it is, um, well, there are seven species of tuna we got here, and the albacore is the little one that we use in tuna melts, and it's only about four feet long and weighs about 88 pounds. Mm. And then there are lots of yellowfin tuna that grew to, grew to seven feet. But the bluefin tuna is the big greyhound of the sea, and it can be nine feet and over 1,000 pounds. Oh, um, wow. And so it's a very fast fish. They're really built for speed. They've been recorded churning the water at 43 miles per hour. Uh, the tuna are steel blue above and silver below. They're mm. robust with a body that's about one-fifth deep as long, and they tapering aft from the high dorsal fin on top are nine little finlets. And finlets march down to a very slender, you know, small or the caudal peduncle right before the, the tail um, shoots up again. And... Um, on this little small part of the tuna fish, there are little keels on either side that protrude outwards. And so the, the, the finlets and the tiny keels, these indicate a very fast-swimming fish because they're like the feathers on an arrow. It doesn't take yeah. much feather on an arrow. That the higher the speed, the less feather it takes for stability. Mm-hmm. And yet the tuna also has a tail. It's an oversized lunate caudal fin. So lunate means it's crescent-shaped equally tall as deep with a trailing edge that would match the curvature of the moon if the tuna would show jump in front of the moon for us or something. Oh, gosh, so this is so beautiful. Yeah. yeah. So why are they so fast? Are they escaping something? or what is, what is this speed all about? Well, their favorite food is mackerel, and mackerel is related to the tuna, okay. um, and they, too, are fast feeders. And so um, mackerel can't be eaten by codfish because they can't catch them, but mm-hmm. they, they are um, taken by these wicked fast-feeding fish, and uh, these tuna fish. And also the tuna breed in um, the Gulf of Mexico, and everybody looks at their maps and they say, oh, North America, but they, tunas also breed in the Mediterranean Ocean. Oh, and we don't right? know which which ones are which when we see them here in Mass Bay or on Stellwagen Bank. Okay. There's no way of telling whether the fish were from the Mediterranean or the um, Gulf of Mexico. But either way, these are long-distance swimmers. They sure are. These are like speedsters, these marvelous yeah. speedsters. They travel a long distance. Tell us about the Boston bluefin tuna uh, in Stellwagen Bank. Is it, now, can you tell that it's a, a Boston bluefin? No, a Boston bluefin means it's a bluefin tuna uh, caught on Stellwagen Bank. And the best okay. tuna fishing um, near Boston is on Stellwagen, and arguably the best tuna fishing in the world is on Stellwagen mm. Bank. And that's partly the market. The Japanese are, are craving and, and love tuna fish. Uh, we didn't have a market for tuna prior to 1970. Um, sport fishermen would go after the sport of taking them, and they would eat them when they took them. But there was no fish market until about the 70s. And so the Japanese chefs have, just, have figured out that the tuna fish from Stellwagen Bank has more fat in the mussel because they think it's the cold water of Stellwagen Bank. And so that fat in the mussel makes for a tenderer cut of fish. Mm. So now... Um, Whenever they see that kind of marbling, they just call it a Boston bluefin tuna, even though it may be caught somewhere else. Oh, amazing. I, I'm getting hungry just listening to this. I love tuna. 
So is, is food plentiful in Stillwagon Bank for the tuna? Yes. Yeah. Must yeah, they be. just cruise through here, and yeah. Mm, keep them keep them nice and robust and, and healthy. So in January of 2013, 2013, this year, uh, a bluefin tuna sold, check this out, listeners, sold for over a million dollars. Was this due to the fact that tuna takes decades to grow to marketable size and thus its value? Yeah, that's a good question. So that the tuna sold for one million seven hundred and sixty thousand dollars, and that works out to about three thousand six hundred dollars per pound of edible tuna steaks. Mm. So that, that's money. an expensive meal. Yeah, sit down to a pound of tuna and fork over thirty six hundred dollars. Well, no wonder um, sushi's so expensive. <laughs> yeah, that little tiny bite, you know, that's that's just a fraction of that expensive. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, it's, it, it's the it's the legacy of the fact that it's marbled just right that the, mm. the uh, connoisseurs will pay the extra dollar for it. You know, it, it gives an appreciation uh, to to this to this tuna, this delicacy, this fish, uh, because it really has a, a seasoned timeline. You know, it's sort of the end of a very long uh, journey and and growth and and uh, value. It's it's really. Really beautiful. Glad to share it. So now, I, I love the bluefin, but we're going to switch now to the whales at Chuck Wagon Bank. Now, I want to hear about this. The, are these humpback whales? Yes. And they come to feed in Chuck Wagon Bank? Uh, Stellwagon Bank. <laughs> Stellwagon Bank. I'm so sorry. But it, it, Stellwagon Bank becomes what I call Chuck Wagon Bank okay. because of all the breeding mm-hmm. sand lamps and amphipods and all the fecundity of life that just fills the waters right over this this gravel threshold between the Gulf of Maine and, and Mass Bay, and uh, that's the place to be to have dinner. And if you go out on a whale watch uh, to Stellwagen Bank in late July, and you see a flock of black-headed laughing gulls wheeling about the white water from an otherwise blue sea, well, you steer for the birds because... Um, Watch out. You may see a swirly, bubbly water um, with this, you know, in, in the water, which is, that has, which is what's being made by the whales. So they will, you know, exhale uh, uh, air to create this, this bubbles, up, the bubbles up from below. So you see this kind of white patch in the water. Okay. And the next thing you know, there's this blackness that will rise up to the surface like Mount Kilimanjaro above a plain of ocean waves, and it's wearing a halo of the birds. And... There's this momentary monument of blackness that opens up like petals of a tulip flower. Oh, and you see the studded jo- top jaws of three or four whales that fall back away from one another mm. and settle back beneath the waves to top distended bottom jaw filled to the brim with hearty soup. And oh. for a while, the whales might just lull with their lower lip like a curtain edge of pleated rorqual muscles contracting to squeeze seawater through baleen and leaving them a mouthful of food. Oh, this, you know, the way you're describing it, Rob, it's like a ballet. This is a, a very, very beautiful sight. It's like a, a synchronous swim, is it not? Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. And they're, they're doing, they're masters of a synchronous swim while they're gulping enormous quantities of fish and zooplankton and they're dancing with their mouth full. And the birds cry in delight at the stunned bounty that's being brought up from the deep by the whales. And they, the birds, they swoop and dive and swallow. And the dance begins while the whales are diving deep. And mm. then they, 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 
let bubbles or reeled off that become a white cloud that rises to the surface. And from above, the view is of a dark sea with a pale white balloon approaching, more impressive than a lava lamp. And then the whole surface of the water starts to shimmer like it's being hit by raindrops. Okay. And it's the whales that are coming up through there. Just amazing. But, you know, unfortunately, the whales are getting poisoned by favorite foods that people eat, fertilizer with nitrogen, fire retardant chemicals from clothing and plastics. Imagine this. How is this going to affect the whales, Rob? Um, well, the nitrogen just feeds the algae and it causes eutrophication of the waters. And, and, but there are other toxins, like you said, the uh, harmful, the, the uh, um, fire retardant chemicals, right. yeah. uh, pharmaceuticals, uh, methylmercury, uh, lead, uh, these other things, they reside in the fat cells of you and me and animals. And for mammals, they can be passed from mother to child. And so they are bioaccumulating. And mm-hmm. it, it's a real bummer for um, fishes at the top of the food chain, like the, the big tuna fish. Um, the day tuna fish is seven layers up, seven trophic levels up. So that's 10 to the seven powers per pound of, of flesh that's concentrated poisons in it. Wow. So I, I prefer tuna melts over sushi tuna. And, and okay. that's you know, the cheaper the seafood, the better it is for you. Is <laughs> that right? Yes. Yeah. So, you know, tuna melts are made from the little albacore and yellowfin tuna, and so they have a thousands less pollutants than the bluefin tuna because they don't live as long and um, they, don't, they don't live as long, I guess. Oh, mm-hmm. and they feed a little lower down the food chain, too. Okay. Um, sure. And then, and, and then canned mackerel is one-third the price of canned tuna fish. So in my graduate student days, you know, I lived on canned mackerel, and that's much less than tuna fish because it's lower down the food chain. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's an issue for all marine life, especially the mammals, in that, you know, we worry about these toxins accumulating to the point that they may not be so able to reproduce so much. And, right. You know, well, you know, the that. female whale passes toxins to their babies, whereas the male whale... Uh, they may have more toxins in their system overall. This is very interesting. Yeah, that's, that's right. Yeah. They find that, that males have more than females because the female is dumping some into the kid. Okay. Or calf yeah. or whatever you mm-hmm. call a young whale. Uh, you would know better than I, Rob. Hey, you know. But, but so if they're passing the toxins to their babies, do they ever have a chance to not be toxic? I mean, over, over a course of time. No, that's the scary thing. And so yeah. they found with sperm whales in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, Roger Payne and his colleagues found that these whales in the middle of nowhere are heavily polluted from fire retardant chemicals mm-hmm. that are just circulating in the generations. Mm-hmm. So, you know, basically we've got to really be aware of uh, the fertilizer we use and, and the clothing and the chemicals and the plastic. We all have to do our part. And, and we have to, you know, not pollute. This is sort of a, a mantra. Uh, how can we instill this into the general public's perception that what they do day-to-day is so important overall and especially to, to this marine life? Well, you interviewing me is the first step. I appreciate that. And, and oh. then, mm-hmm. you know, people understanding the connections. I mean, we have to spell out the connections. People just assume, you know, when they flush the toilet out of sight, out of mind. But sewage treatment plants are not set up to pull out heavy metals and these, you know, toxins that we're talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, and so basically, you know, if you can't eat it first, don't 
you know, be very careful about how you throw it away. Right. Uh, and it's just, it's just the consciousness that we just cannot pollute. You know, we just must not pollute. And people find time and time again when they recycle, reuse, or whatever, um, they end up saving money as well as, or, you know, as well as uh, having a cleaner environment. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, it's like anything else. It's creating better habits. Uh, and when that consciousness is out there, uh, that, that just as in the marine life that we have discussed in uh, Stellwagen Bank, that there's, a, there's an ecosystem that is so amazing there, and they're all relying on each other, but they're relying on us. And if we can get that perception really locked into our brain, then one little step adds to the next, adds to the next. So that's a, a great um, consciousness. So there's another fish that I think, you know, we'll, we'll talk about quickly, the haddock. These are very so beautiful. They taste a lot like cod. Um, tell us a little something about this mystical uh, fish. There's a story behind it, right? Oh, yeah. Christine, we're going to take a short break, and we'll okay. get ready to hear about the haddock. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Connecting local stewardship with global support, the Ocean River Institute is a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work. We believe that many environmental issues can best be addressed by people taking action in their own communities and regions. It's not the large national entities, but the small, localized, or newly formed groups that often need help to achieve their goals. That's where the Ocean River Institute comes in. We maintain a network of eco-stewards and ORI partners, connecting them with resources and services to help them maximize their impact, expand their capacity, and weather unexpected setbacks. ORI actions and events offer opportunities to make a difference, to go the distance, and you can volunteer to be an ORI eco-steward. To discover more, visit us online at www.oceanriver.org. That's www.oceanriver.org. The Ocean River Institute is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work through environmental stewardship and science. Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. If you'd like to talk, call us toll-free right now at 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. That's it. That's it. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. To participate in today's discussion, you're welcome to call into the program at 1-888-346-9141. Again, that's 1-888-346-9141. You can also send an email to rob at oceanriver.org. Now, back to Dr. Rob Moyer. Hi, we're back, and we're talking about Stellwagen Bank National Marine Sanctuary and specifically some of the fish that visit and live there. And um, talking with me about this is Christine Larkin. Hi, Rob. Before the break, we were talking about haddock, and these are very beautiful. Uh, and apparently, well, I, I haven't had haddock, I'll, I'll admit, but I'm told they taste like cod. Um, 
Tell us about this fish. Uh, there's a mystical story behind the haddock, isn't there? Yeah, well, that's, the fish is really interesting. Um, uh, the, the seminal work about the fish in the Gulf of Maine is written by Henry Bigelow and William Schroeder, and they published in the 50s. And they say that a new-caught haddock is a very beautiful object indeed. And in the subsequent edition, the scientists took that part out because they didn't think scientists should say such things. But um, it's, the haddock is very much like a cod. And in Boston, um, we used to have on the menu scrod. And scrod meant that um, it was either going to be haddock or cod, depending on what the fishermen brought in. Ah, but okay. we didn't have to change the menu every day or something. <laughs> We didn't have specials of the day except on a blackboard, you know, but the printed menu would be just printed once. And uh, it really, you know, when, when they were caught like dinner plate size with fillets, um, it's really hard to tell them apart. Uh, I couldn't tell them apart. Um, but in the water, you really can tell them apart. That The haddock, I see, is a sleeker and rather racier fish than the cod. And the haddock's leading dorsal fin reminds me of the sail of a lantean rig sunfish sailboat. You know, it's oh, it sticks yeah. right up there with the first um, the first bone is the longest and you know, sweeps downward. Whereas the uh, codfish uh, has more of its dorsal fin is more like the looking at the side of a of a canoe paddle. You know, it mm -hmm. marches up and marches down on the back. And most distinctive is the the haddock has on its side a dusky blotch, um, which uh, is described by Bigelow and Schroeder as a dusky blotch on either side from the middle of the pectoral fin. And that's the distinguishing mark. So uh, they both have the same lines on them, and they both have a little bobble on the, underneath their chin and stuff. But um, those, that mark is, um, is the stuff of legends. Yeah. They, and, and so when you say the stuff of legends, that's, that's like their their little symbol, so to speak. And and what is the the purpose of it? Do do we know? No, no. Mm -hmm. Well, the fishermen call it. Some call it the mark of. They call the mark God's fingerprint, uh -huh. or Saint okay. Peter's fingerprint. Uh -huh. And so you know, and and of course the scientists they see it as they're making up reasons for it. But um, there it is. And mm -hmm. um, you know, so, let me tell, yeah. can I tell you the story? You know, so. Uh, the story goes back to the Bible where St. Peter was a fisherman named Simon Peter. Mm -hmm. And he's out in his boat one day, and he sees on the shore a man attempting to speak to a larger gathering of people. And the man is Jesus. And so Peter puts him on the boat or picks him up, and he moves a short distance out from the shore. And uh, Jesus is then able to talk to the people on the shore from Peter's boat. And then after completing his lesson from the lee rail, Jesus says to Peter, according to the Gospel of Luke, put out into deep water and let down the nets for a catch. Mm. And Peter said to have replied, Master, we've worked hard all night and haven't caught anything, but because you say so, I'll let down the nets. <laughs> and, of course, they catch such a large number of fish that their nets began to break, and another boat has to come over and help them haul the catch into the boats. And there's so much fish, both boats almost sink. But um, they don't, and, and so Peter goes ashore and kneels before Jesus in awe and admiration. And uh, Jesus says, don't be afraid. From now on, you will catch men. So that's the first, Peter's first miraculous catch of fish. And there's a second miraculous catch that comes years later after Jesus has been crucified. Mm -hmm. At that point, seven disciples are out fishing one evening and again catching nothing that night. And then early the next morning, a man on the shore calls out, 
friends, have you any fish? No, they reply. And uh, so the man says, well, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you'll find some. And they did and had difficulty pulling in the net for all the fish in it. They caught 153 fish. And then the disciples knew the man to be Jesus. And so Peter reaches with both hands into the catch, and with thumb and forefinger he grabbed a fish in each hand, and holding the fish high, leapt off the boat into the water. Releasing the fish, the two fish swim away, and Peter, leaving the others to manage the boat, waded in through the waves to meet Jesus. And Jesus is reported to have then cooked the fish, presumably right there on the beach, and together Jesus and all the fishermen ate fish. So... It's a wonderful story, and the scholars go on and on wondering why 153 fish, and we don't know why. But um, We'll have to look into that number. Maybe that's a magical number. Well, they did, and they couldn't get any connection on it. But the fishermen, they don't have to ponder why there's so many haddock in the sea. Um, and some, when they see the haddock, think of the fisherman, uh, Peter, who became the first pope, and okay. the imprint that he's left on all of us. Okay. So that's that print on the haddock. Yeah, well, that's a very beautiful story. Uh, I want to switch to, to a different kind of fish now, uh, the wolf fish. Uh, these fish normally do not attack anything in its normal way of life, but watch out when hauled out of water, they can snap at anything in their path. They've been known to uh, bite through anchor chains if they don't really feed on other fish. Why do you think they're in Stellwagen Bank? They like their boulder reefs. Oh, yeah. So the, hmm. um, the, um, well, at certain life stages. So the, the youngest ones, um, the young wolf fish, they like to eat um, shrimp-like zooplankton critters and amphipods and euphausids. Mm-hmm. And the medium-sized wolf fish eat the greater proportion of sea urchins and other echinoderms. And the large wolf fish feed primarily on bivalve moths, scallops, and ocean quahog. And um, so... They, I, well, you know, they have these incredible teeth in their mouth that I could describe. Right. They get I was going the, to mention yeah. that. Yeah. So, so they grind their teeth a lot, apparently, right? Well, they've got these big molars, and behind the big molars are all these sharp teeth that can rip and tear the food and then throw it back between their, their, um, their molars or their conical teeth. They've got rows and rows of them. They actually have teeth in their throat as well. Oh, and my. so... All of this grinds and masticates the shellfish and the hard shell clams. All that stuff is tossed into the, you know, tossed down their throat. And they actually have found they do wolffish. The, the wolffish wolf their food on occasion. Okay, hence the and name. They, the name is connected to that, huh? Well, no, I think because they're they're wicked mean with teeth sticking out and stuff. But they do. <laughs> but they have been found with complete, you know, um, sand dollars and some other uh, marine life in their stomach that they haven't properly chewed. Mm-hmm. Well, they'd have to have sharp teeth to chew through the shells uh, of the yeah. fish. Now, are they falling through the cracks of fishery management? Tell us about that. Yes. So um, they generally, you can't really fish for them with nets, okay. although they do get caught, brought in occasionally from trawls and stuff. And so people have found they're good to eat, and yet there is no fishery management program for them. Uh-huh. Uh, and so... They, the numbers are down. The numbers are going down and down. Mm. And this is a concern. And so 
Um, we've been, the Ocean River Institute and other groups have been petitioning the government to consider listing wolffish as, an, as a threatened species, if not an endangered species. Okay. And uh, the alternative are also, uh, it's important if you're going to be catching them that we have a management plan, and they haven't done that yet. They haven't, you know, the New England Fisheries Management Council has been pretty busy with a lot of different fish, and, and sure. this fish hasn't come up yet. Mm-hmm. Well, you know that's uh, that's the next uh, next layer is to get that management uh, focusing on the wolffish, um, but I want to shift our focus on duck duck goosefish. Now, these are some of the ugliest and meanest fish to dwell in Stellwagen Bank National Marine Sanctuary. Uh, tell us about these ugly, mean fish. Well, the goosefish is now called the monkfish. Is and that right? Okay. Yeah. So in 1948, so they taste good. exactly. So 19, there's the ugliest thing ever. But in 1948, since they couldn't find much else off the British Isles, they started serving up goosefish. Except they didn't call it goosefish; they called it monkfish. And mm-hmm. when you see the fillets, you see a nice fillet, but a third of the body, or more than a third of the body, is just his head. It looks like a a tadpole. You know, it's, it's flat and or it's kind of compress uh, top to bottom, mm-hmm. and it's got this wide jaw that juts out in front of it like a bear trap or a leg holder trap or something, and the top lift cannot cover all those teeth that are sticking up at you. And then it has on its its first dorsal fin spine is leaned forward like a fishing rod and has a little lure, a little piece of flap of skin at the end that waggles, and uh, so it buries down into the sand and waggles its little fishing rod, and then when a fish comes down to nibble on this little piece of flesh, the big mouth traps around the, the animal. Oh, so and they actually take too. birds. They what? They're sneaky too. Oh, totally. Oh, yeah. Now, they'll catch whatever they can, uh, in, including fish as big as themselves. Is that yeah. a, a challenge for them, or they do that with these as well? Yeah, they're they're mostly mouths, so it's pretty mm. easy to get their mouth around stuff. Um, they're called goosefish, although I've never found a case of them eating a goose. Uh, they do eat all <laughs> kinds of, of waterfowl. Yeah, they eat, you know, the scoters and eiders. They're, they're pretty big. Wow. Uh, what's interesting is um, the scoters and eiders. They eat um, mussels, and the mussels grow on different kind of bottom than do the monkfish hang out on. Okay. And the long-tailed ducks, uh, they have smaller bills, so they can't crunch up mussels and and uh, and clams and stuff. So they um, are, are biting amphipods, and they're eating things that look like that little wavy thing on the spine of the of the monkfish. Mm-hmm. And so um, they would be the right kind of duck to go after. And oddly enough, the goose, the long tails, are are observed during the day feeding south of Nantucket Sound, out over the shoals south of Nantucket Sound. And then they fly 10 to 30 miles back into Nantucket Sound, which is the north side of Nantucket, to roost and sleep at night. They don't eat at night. They just roost there. And um, the scientists, you know, they eliminated the fact they might be feeding up there at night and um, some other ideas. And all they can think of, really, is that this is a learned behavior to avoid sleeping where there might be monkfish because uh, in the 1850s, they talk about thousands of monkfish coming ashore and stuff in the Provincetown area and so forth. So... It could be that these guys um, have changed their behavior because they don't want to be et by the, the monkfish. And the monkfish at night comes up and grabs stuff. It doesn't wait for them to die for them. 
Wow, isn't that something? So their behavior is is still evolving. Yeah. Mm. I mean, this this probably happened thousands of years ago that yeah. the, the, the long tails figured it out, you know, where to be and not to be. It, it's, it's a clever bunch here. So, yeah. you know, you've given uh, such personality to the fish of Stellwagen Bank National Marine Sanctuary, and it's just been um, incredibly fascinating uh, to learn about the, the structure and, and the order. But, you know, listeners... They want to help, too, I'm sure. And so how can they do that, Rob? Yeah. Well, the first thing is in order to help save the ocean is you have to care about parts of it. And so I hope that, you know, by getting some more personality to these fish, I've helped people understand the dynamic and complexity uh, of the problems and, and how that, you know, we can eat fish and have wonderful wildlife. Yeah. Uh, as for what people can do, um, well, the first thing to do is please uh, visit my website, oceanriver.org, and uh, sign up for e-alerts to find out when things are happening, where you can make a difference, when you can speak out. Another thing to do is to uh, visit Stellagen Bank National Marine Sanctuary, the website, or the sanctuary itself. There are whale watches. Uh, if you take the ferry boat from uh, Boston to Provincetown, you cross over the, the lower corner of Stellwagen. Uh It's just phenomenal. It, it sure is. And so this is a good place even to go and watch the, uh, the whales uh, in their amazing swim that we talked about earlier. Uh, so give us a quick, as we're winding down here, a quick breakdown of, of each of the fish, the names maybe, so people can even yes. do their own research on them. So we talked about the bluefin tuna cruising over the gulf of Stellwagen Bank. We talked about the wolf fish on the gravel bottoms are the boulder reefs, and we talked about haddock and codfish on gravel bottoms, and the monkfish, goosefish on sandy bottoms, and the uh, redfish on the muddy bottoms. Mm. So um, we're kind of out of time, and Christine, I really want to thank you for hosting me on my own program. Well, it's been fun. I've learned a lot. I can't wait to come up and visit that region of uh, the northeastern United States, such a beautiful place. And thank you, Rob, for having me. It's been a pleasure. Well, it's been a real pleasure. Thank you, Christine. And that's it for this episode of Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. Until next time, thanks a lot for listening. Thank you. Thanks again for joining us this week on Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. Please tune in for more with Dr. Rob Moyer next Thursday at 12 noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll talk again then. Dr.